0: Welcome to UWO Now. I'm your host, Wendell Ray. UWO Now is the podcast where we talk about interesting and relevant topics with the students, staff, and faculty at the University of Wisconsin-Oshkosh. Today, we've got a very interesting topic. It was in February of 2022 when Russian forces invaded Ukraine. And since then, billions of dollars in support from the United States and NATO have poured into Ukraine. Sanctions and other penalties have targeted Russia and its oligarchs. But let's take a step back so that we can literally understand what in the world is going on and why it should matter to us here. Joining us today is Dr. Tracy Hoffman Slachter, a professor in the Department of Political Science and the faculty advisor of the award-winning Model Nations team at UWO Oshkosh. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Tracy, good to see you. Likewise, it's a pleasure. Tell us about who you are, how you got to UWO, and how you got to be and why you chose this particular subject matter to to, Mm -hmm. to concentrate on.
1: Yeah, so I finished my Ph.D. at the University of Iowa in 2006, and I had applied for a bunch of different jobs and uh, was lucky enough to get the job here. Um, and my husband and my family and I, we have fallen in love with Oshkosh and we've stayed ever since. The university has been a really fun place to build a career and I have an awesome department. That is one of the things that um, I think is definitely maybe rare in, in academia. My department is really supportive and they're fun and I love them and uh, I can't imagine doing this job without them. But. Um, no, I, I started in political science. I think I got the bug when I was a sophomore in high school. I was taking a bunch of AP courses. I'm originally from Brainerd, Minnesota. Um, I took an AP course in comparative government and loved it. And um, decided pretty much I had talked to my high school teacher and I said, you know, how do you how do you do this, you know, at, mm-hmm. at, at the university level? And he said, well, here's what you need to do. And I said, all right, that's what I'm gonna do. Um, and I did. And you know. Politics is intensely interesting. It's a part of literally every aspect of our lives, but people don't tend to think of it that way. Like, of course, it's part of gas prices. Of course, it's part of, you know, foreign policy, but it's mm-hmm, part of yeah. the food that you eat. It's part of literally everything that you do. And so it became to me something that is just the sort of driving passion that I can connect to everything. And I also really love sharing that with students so that they can see, you know, sort of have this you know, veil pulled up and say like, literally everything that you're doing has a political dimension. Let's figure out why, let's figure out how you can change it if you want to do that or maintain a status quo if that's what you wanna do. Like you need to know how it works. Um, I study international politics, comparative politics, which essentially means I study all the countries except the United States, um, which makes it uh, really, really interesting. My specialty is the European Union, and you know, when we're talking about the conflict with Ukraine, that is um, obviously really, really front and center. I always thought that I was gonna study international organizations. So I thought I was gonna study the UN primarily um, and through a very odd kind of twist of fate, I now do because I am one of the faculty advisors for the Model UN team. Um, but I primarily study international law, um, uh, international criminal law, so crimes against humanity, war crimes, those sorts of things, and the European Union. Um, But through my my career at the university, I've been encouraged and and I don't know, asked to teach in a wide array of fields. So environmental politics is something I do. I teach a class on the politics of food. I mean, we have a small department that is, I think, stretched to do the things that we think are important and we're allowed to do those things, which is kind of awesome.
0: You mentioned the Model Nations yeah. uh, team here at UWO mm-hmm. doing great things mm-hmm. uh, this past semester uh, in the spring of 2022. Yeah. Tell us about that. What, what exactly is that Model Nations team? What do they do? How do they compete? How do they yeah. prepare? What's your role in, in all of that?
1: Well, Model United Nations is, I would say, like the ultimate learning experience for students. Um, it is essentially about the art of compromise and negotiation. And so students through taking on the, the sort of perspective of other countries, you, we usually always play an African country or a really small country, um, they really get a chance to explore how do, you, how do you find agreement in large groups of people representing other countries that, you know, maybe have very, very different interests, very, very, very different identities from, from you, right? And different sort of power relationships from, from what you have. So it's a chance for students to build those skills of negotiation, compromise, um, oral communication, written communication. In a Model UN competition, we're throwing students into rooms of college students and saying, organize yourselves and figure out a way that you can reach some sort of compromise within a span of this five-day conference. Um, and
0: and how how are they judged? How do you yeah. okay decide that okay they did a better job mm-hmm. of negotiating mm-hmm. an issue compared to X school?
1: Well, our team our sort of claim to fame is that we always come in armed with a whole lot of knowledge. Our team is incredibly well prepared. So not only on just how do you negotiate, how do you talk to talk to other people, but how do you write a position paper? How do you write a speech? That, like those are all things that we can teach, right? But getting all of the background knowledge, they know the UN really, really well. They know foundational documents depending on the issue they're talking about. They might be talking about improvised explosive devices. They might be talking about climate change. They might be talking about indigenous rights. There are a whole host of things that our students need to know. And our team has been marked by a willingness to really dive in and gain that expertise. And what I think is the most impressive about all of that is that they're doing it and they don't get academic credit for it. It's not a class, Oh. right? So they go, the university has been amazing in supporting them um, and they do great things. But you asked how they're judged. They're judged on their ability to bring a large group of people together. So during these conferences, you have uh, people who are leading the conferences who are circling hotel ballrooms because there will be hundreds yeah. of students in each of these rooms representing different countries, right? The you know less than 200 countries of the UN and what they're looking for are people who have this art of negotiation and of bringing people together and of forging compromise. They're looking for those people. And we've been really fortunate in that UW Oshkosh students have a, sort of a, a recognized talent in doing that. We practice a lot, those types of skills to ensure that students, when they get to those conferences, they stand out right? They're well-prepared. They're well-spoken. They have tactics to bring and in an authentic way to bring people together and forge compromises. That's, that's a skill that you learn. That's not just something like, well, I'm just good at that, right? That's a skill that you practice. And all of those skills that we teach and practice in Model UN are actually skills that we teach and practice in every course in the university and also in your life, right? Mm -hmm. Someday you're gonna have to buy a car, you're gonna have to buy a house, you're gonna have to negotiate a raise, you're gonna have to figure out all these things. It really helps if you have the skills necessary to be like the nice, informed, firm person who can bring parties with differing interests and differing backgrounds together to reach something that's mutually you want everybody to walk away happy yeah right it's not about power it's not about you know slamming you down so that i get more it's about making sure that we've come to a mutually beneficial agreement and that's hard
0: you're listening to uwo now i'm your host wendell ray and today we're talking with dr tracy Slakter, who is with the political science department at uwo um uwo now is an opportunity for us to talk to people like tracy and other students uh, staff and faculty at UWO about interesting and relevant topics uh, uh in the world before we move on to what's going on with uh uh the re- Ukraine and with Russia and the war there uh let's talk about how successful that United Nations team mm-hmm. here was uh mm-hmm. last semester I mentioned that it kind of prepped it but tell us exactly how how they um how they did yeah. uh last year because it is a competition and there mm-hmm. are many na- uh Uh, teams from across the nation represented. From across the world. It's an international conference. Tell us how they did.
1: Yeah, they did spectacularly well. Um, Sort of the highest honor that you can get as a delegation, um, that would mean representatives of a single country, is you can get the outstanding delegation award. And this means that across, you know, a whole host of different topics that the UN addresses. You know, we were representing, for example, Botswana, whether it was in an environmental room, sort of the United Nations Environmental Assembly, or whether it was in the General Assembly First Committee, which deals more with security and political issues, your whole team has to be kind of on the same page and having a leading role in bringing people together and fostering compromise. And um, you know, if you sort of are the scoring enough points across your whole delegation, you can win the outstanding delegation award, and we did. Um, for uh, our Botswana delegation, we also had a smaller delegation of mostly first-year students that was representing Singapore, and they—I mean, they did—they didn't win an outstanding delegation award, but they won so many other awards, just like the outstanding delegate award. Like they mm. were recognized for doing these other things, and these were students who had just joined Model UN. Oh wow! Like they were first-year stu- first-year students, and now they're going to form the backbone of our team, and I, I just couldn't be happier. Like I the enthusiasm bet. that students have when they join this team, they realize that they're getting not only expertise and skills, but like, oh, that's super important, right? But more important than that is they're gaining a team, right? and everybody has everybody else's back, and you have to work together. And it becomes a really close-knit, it has been for decades, a really close-knit uh, organization. And our alums uh, from Model UN are incredibly supportive and active. Um, we've got alums who literally follow our progress at I competitions know, yeah. and are messaging me like, how are they doing? <laughs> and that's, I mean, when I stepped into this role in 2018, I did not think that that's what was going to happen. Um, but I've been super impressed and humbled by the legacy of the team and their ability to work really hard and, uh, you know, to do it all for the, for the love of it.
0: How big right? is the team?
1: The team really varies in size. Right now, we're small. We had a lot of students graduate, so right now we're probably hovering at around ten. So we're going to be doing recruitment. So if so anybody small, wants to join, how,
0: what's the the number? I know how many a basketball team ought to have. Yeah. How many a football team ought to have? Yeah. How many members should ideally would you like to have on Model Nations?
1: I'd like to have twenty-five to thirty, because then I can have I can have our students representing more than one country at the national conference. Um, we can do it with a small team. Um, But it's really more fun if we can do it with a a slightly larger team. Um, We get to go to St. Louis. We get to go to New York City. In November of 2023, we're going to be competing at our very first ever international conference in Germany. Wow. So there's a lot of exciting things. And we're going to be doing, we'll be at Titan Fest. And um, we're really excited to have a couple of new people join.
0: Okay. and. The idea is to have enough so that you can have multiple nations mm-hmm. represented or have teams representing multiple nations and do negotiations that way. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. And these students use those skills, as you said, not just – uh, for degree purposes, but in life, so it's 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 beneficial all the way around. So well, that's great.
1: I was just talking to um, a pair of alums who are now married, um, model UN alums. <laughs> Talk about it. It happens, right? Yeah. Um, and just a couple of weeks ago, and they've been out since, gosh, twenty twelve, uh, maybe, and they're doing really well. Uh, in their careers, but they said they still, anytime they go up for a job interview or promotion, they still bring up their Model UN experience because it was just so formative, right? And there's really not another experience that I can think of that, you know, hits all of our essential learning outcomes of the university right. uh, in quite the same way. So I, I just get super excited about it, as you can tell, because I, I feel like it's, it's just such an amazing way to serve students. And to really showcase what they can do when they're at their app, when they're firing on all cylinders. It's amazing. And I think this past year in particular, when we were in New York City, it was just so wonderful to see them transform from, you know, college students wearing sweatpants and leggings on the bus and on the yeah. plane. And then they're all in suits and ties and, you know, skirts and super professional in the span of an hour. And especially as we're coming out of Covid, um, to see them all at this conference where they were doing their thing and so happy to be doing it, it was just, I mean, it was just amazing.
0: You're listening to UWO Now. I'm your host, Wendell Ray, and today our guest is Dr. Tracy Slachter. She is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the UW Oshkosh campus. We've been talking so far about model nations, but we're going to transition in a second to talk about Uh, what's going on in the Russo-Ukrainian War and why that is important to everybody in the United States. Of course, NATO is heavily involved in supporting uh, the Ukrainian side. But before we move into that, we needed to kind of finish up some stuff with Model Nations.
1: Yeah. I just wanted to say that, you know, one of the great things about this Model UN team is the level of university support that we receive. So not only am I one of the faculty advisors, not only do we have the support of the chancellor's office and the provost's office and, and so many people and the foundation who help us to do anything that we do. Um, I'm lucky enough that I have a co-advisor, um, Dr. Ange Sabulba in international studies. She's the director of international studies um, you know we could not do this on our own it's, yeah, it's just it's a, a lot team to handle yeah it, you
0: need some need some uh, multiple coaches exactly yeah, right.
1: exactly and and um, you know we almost always study after we almost always represent African countries and, and why is and, that um, there are a lot of reasons but you remember how I said like you want to get a big group of people on your side right okay. like when you're at these conferences you want to build a big coalition or a big caucus right and Africa has 54 states,
0: ah, right? Okay.
1: So if you can find an issue that is important to all African countries, well, there are 54 of them, so that you sort of can have this kind of built in, you know, Africa's really diverse and, and really different. Northern Africa and Southern Africa are really different, but you might be able to hit on issues that would be relevant to all of them. So it's kind of a nice starting point. And Ange is an Africanist, right? She studies African politics. She studies Zambia. She studies refugee politics. I mean, she's just an amazing scholar. Um, So it's really great. And I feel really, really fortunate to have someone like her who is sort of my my other half uh, in this team.
0: Well, we're fortunate to have you here with us today to help us break down what's going on uh, in um, Ukraine. In February of 2022, as I mentioned at the start of the program today, uh, Russia invaded uh, Mm -hmm. Ukrainian space. Now, many people may think that's when the war started, but this is something that's been going on for really decades. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell us what we ought to know Mm -hmm. about what is happening in that part of the country Mm -hmm. and how we got to where we are today.
1: It's a long, complicated story that I would you know, largely defer to my historian colleagues um, to give you all the details. But the the sort of short um, answer to this is this is not a new conflict. This is not something that just emerged on February 24th of 2022. Um, You may recall even just a few years ago in 2014, uh, where Russia under Vladimir Putin annexed the Crimea, right? The Crimean Peninsula, which is part of Ukraine. It is sovereign Ukrainian territory. And he basically just took it. Um, That Militarily? Well, pretty much militarily, yeah, right? There's a whole contingent of Russian forces that are in Eastern Ukraine that have been there, have been threatening Eastern Ukraine since that time and maybe even before then, right? So this is not new, this is not even, I don't know if I wanna say that it's that it's that it was expected, but Russia was not gonna let this go. Um, Russia was always pretty clear that they wanted more and I think when the international community didn't really respond to the annexation of Crimea in 2014 it, and, you know, a whole host of other things. We really didn't respond to, um, you know, Russian aggression and support in Syria, where a whole other conflict has been brewing for, for over a decade now.
0: What's the um, connection there?
1: Well, the Syria is another really complicated conflict, right, where you have uh, essentially what is a civil war. Um, with backing from uh, major powers like the United States, like Russia, bring the Iranians in, bring the Israelis, I mean, bring everybody into that. And the United States and Russia are always on opposite sides there, right? So um, the Russians have supported Bashar al-Assad, who is the dictator of Syria. Um, And they've committed some pretty, uh, incredibly bad atrocities in Syria, and we've just sort of let it go, right? And Um, when
0: we say not to get too deep into the weeds here, but when we say that Russia has supported Syria, Mm -hmm. we mean supported their dictator. Similarly, how we are supporting Ukraine, that is militarily, politically. How had they shown support to Syria?
1: Well, you know, if we just think of the United Nations, Russia has always blocked any sort of uh, attempt by the United Nations to intervene meaningfully in Syria to end that conflict or at least. Try to mitigate that conflict. It was a brutal, brutal war, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Putin, uh, you know, Russia under Putin, we could say that he's actively trying to destabilize not only that region by support, supporting a dictator in uh, Syria, but also by destabilizing the region and sending you know hundreds of thousands of refugees to Europe. That's really destabilizing. Um, that's what he wants he I, I think at the end of the day, what what Putin wants to to do and what we've sort of allowed him to show is, you know, Western liberal democracies they just don't they don't have it, right? they're mm-hmm. They're not going to come and and act in any sort of meaningfully meaningful way. And so when you had that happen in two thousand fourteen, you've had it happen in Syria, and we have other other instances of this as well. I think it's just emboldened someone like Putin. But what I think is super interesting about the current conflict is to a certain degree, the West is resurgent, right? Western liberal democracy, I think people have seen how fragile democracy is mm-hmm. and how it needs to be supported. I mean, we've seen that in the United States, yeah. right? With the um, fragility of American democracy and the insurrection and, and all sorts of attacks on American democracy, election interference by Russia, right? Yeah um they see it in western europe with election interference they see it in the destabilization of having whole you know thousands and thousands of refugees come like none of this happens just on accident right these are are calculated moves and they're part of a i think broader context of kind of the west versus yeah. versus autocracy right and and we talk about that in this country now Um, You know, just talking about like comparing ourselves to Russia, of course. Right. But also comparing ourselves to China. China is not a democracy. They don't pretend to be a democracy. They don't want to be a democracy. Right. So if democracy is truly something worth defending, worth protecting, worth dying for, well, then what's that line? It wasn't Syria. Right. It wasn't it wasn't Crimea. Maybe it's maybe it's this. Maybe it's the whole of Ukraine. Um, And I think you've seen that movement uh, against autocracy, against Putin trying to uh, isolate him through these uh, unprecedented sanctions, through the strengthening of NATO, um, through a a whole host of, you know, uh, all the support financially, militarily that the United States has given, that other Western European countries have given, and the the sort of isolation of Russia to say like, no, this is not the way that the world works. And I can see putin right that you are attempting to change the narrative here and this isn't it there's a liberal democratic order this is how the world works And we're going to fight for it
0: and we also should know i guess and take a look at who putin is and how he views russia and that russia you know there was at one time a soviet union yes and now there is not Mm -hmm. and some of those Former members of the Soviet Union are now members of NATO, and there has been this increasing um, creeping mm-hmm. into what was formerly a uh, uh, kind of uh, a no-NATO zone, right. if you will. Right. But we've got all these you got Poland and Latvia and uh, many other nations close to Russia that are now NATO nations, and mm-hmm. so Putin— Feeling a little anxious. A little crowded. Yeah. Yep. Has said, hey, look, slow your roll a little <laughs> bit there. And let's uh, try. And, and, or if you don't, I I could act militarily. And that's been kind of what, from what I understand, has been happening since the mid-90s.
1: Oh, for sure. Right. So you have the breakup of the Soviet Union, which you know, we just had the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, who didn't intend for the Soviet Union to end, but it did under his watch, right? Mm -hmm. Because he tried to sort of liberalize the Soviet Union to make it more competitive. Um, But you had, I think, you know, Putin comes to power not too long after the Soviet Union is no more, after it's completely dissolved. And I think there's always been this kind of historical legacy of of Russia as much bigger than what it currently is. And this Mm -hmm. idea that Putin likely has that, you know, there is a union of sort of Slavic people and, and they're sort of guided by Russia and we should get the band back together, right? So I think there's, it's irksome to him for sure that many of those countries that you mentioned are NATO members. It might be more, or at least equally as irksome to him that so many of them are European Union member countries now, mm-hmm. because then they're firmly: if you're going to join the European Union, you have to say, sign on the dotted line, and say like we're committed to liberal democracy and market, free market capitalism, and all these things, right? And the respect for the rule of law and respect for human rights and all this business. So, I think it is threatening to him, but it, you know, I, I don't. I think there are many ways we can understand Putin, insofar as we can understand what goes on inside anybody's head, right? Mm, right. And in political science, we think of, you know, conflicts. We have multiple different explanations for why conflicts happen when they do, right? You could say, well, there's a power imbalance, right? And mm-hmm. that, you know, when the war started, everybody thought, myself included, like this is going to be short. Like Russia is overwhelming, in, in its sort of military might, and it just didn't happen. Because I think another explanation for conflict, which is to my mind more powerful here is one of identity. And Putin wants to tell the Ukrainians like, you don't exist. You don't have an identity separate from us. You, We're all really Russians, right? Okay. Which is why he wants to take over and has taken over those parts of Eastern Ukraine and tried to make them into Russians and vote for Russians and you know, not speak Ukrainian and all of these things, right? And I don't think the world was quite prepared for this Ukrainian identity that was so clear and so focused um, in a way that I don't think people necessarily expected and so committed to a future of an independent Ukraine um, that it's, it's just tremendously inspiring. And so there's that that identity bit that has proven stronger. I mean, now we see Ukrainian forces pushing pushing Russian forces back like that's not something in February 2022 that anybody would have thought would have happened nobody would have thought that no. kiev would you know kiev would still be around right and it's there and the ukrainians are holding and they have the support of most of the the world behind them right most of the, the sort of democratic world at least behind them and also you know an increasingly powerful umbrella of nato that should at least worry someone like Putin, right? Now, especially, I mean, you know, having Sweden and Finland join,
0: yeah, the, no, the,
1: right. right? They've been- neutral
0: for so long. Oh
1: yeah. And they've been encouraged to join before, but they're like, nah, we don't need it, right? Well, yeah. <clears throat> to get them on board is is amazing, right? To have the European Union move really quickly, on giving Ukraine candidate status in the EU, this is a process that does not move this fast ever, right? And to have Ukraine already as a candidate country for EU membership, that's crazy. Like I've never seen it happen before. Um, And so I think what this conflict represents and why it's just so fascinating and so critical is it represents this real flashpoint for democracy in my mind. Right. Like here is a chance for us as as believers in democracy. Right. Really put that to the test. How much do you believe in it? Yeah. Are you going to fight for it? Are you going to put your money behind it? Are you going to make sure that we can, you know, uh, we can support Ukraine, support Ukraine meaningfully and not just with our words and, you know, good wishes, but support them to defeat uh, you know the Russians who who want, the, they, you know Putin wants the exact opposite of what we want. He wants full control. He's an authoritarian ruler. That's not what we want.
0: So we talk about this complexity with all this. It's, it's 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 a real life scary Game of Thrones going on here. <laughs> uh, and um, but you know, for the person listening nearby. They may understand it, but why do I really need to be interested in what's happening there? Mm-hmm. How is this really going to, does it or will it impact my life? And not just us, but you can say that for the folks in Europe, too. Yeah. I think we see that in terms of how Russia is manipulating energy uh, sources. But what about the folks here? Mm-hmm. Uh, how are we uh, or why should we be paying attention to what's happening there
1: you're already seeing the impacts of it it's already impacting your life i mean we have inflation in this country and it's tempting to think that inflation is just something that we can manage here on our own Mm -hmm. it's not there's inflation all over the world why is that well um there's a lot of distortion happening now because of the conflict in ukraine um so none of these things as i've said right happen in a vacuum i think uh, you know i think there's a lot
0: uh, real quickly yeah What do you mean by that? So, what's the impact uh, of what's happening here Mm -hmm. on inflation, or not uh, happening there uh, on inflation? Here, yes.
1: Well, I think you have a a lot of things that are happening. First of all, we've had the almost complete isolation of one big economy, right, through the sanctions that have been levied against Russia. I mean, that has been a distortion, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But I think too. you know we're we're paying higher prices because we don't have as many goods why do we not have as many goods because supply chains have been disrupted why are supplies chains being disrupted well because there's a war going on and right the
0: whole premise of inflation is there's more demand than there is supply
1: exactly exactly and so you know while we it's tempting i think in the united states we tend to be really insular and say well you know this is a problem and, and we'll fix it well there's only so much that our government can do to fix this we i mean it's not fixable just on our own, right? As so many problems are that we face right now, something like climate change, for example, Mm. right? Um, These are not problems that we can fix anymore. They take alone, they take concerted global action. Um, And so I think you've seen attempts to do that, uh, attempts to um, bring down inflation. We just passed this Inflation Reduction Act, um, uh, which was a major sort of milestone. But I think- you know, when your average ordinary citizen is thinking, like, how does Ukraine impact me? I think they're already seeing it in their bills. I think they're going, it's going to be something that people should be thinking about when they think about, um, you know, heading to the ballot box in November, right? A lot of our money <laughs> uh, the government is spending is going to Ukraine. Why are we spending that money? Well, we're spending that money because we're trying to defend something that we believe in. What do we believe in? We believe in the values of democracy, right? And we know that that's fragile. We also know that democracy has been something that is contested here, even in the United States in a way that it never has been before. So I think in some ways, you know, when I think about this conflict, I think about how it looks kind of in the broad scheme of world politics, right? And like, what are the times or the moments at which you can say something has fundamentally shifted here? Now we're in a whole new landscape. And I think maybe the last time that that really happened was the end of the Cold War, right? So when the Soviet Union collapsed and you had all of those countries of, uh, you know, former Eastern Europe becoming democracies or, or some semblance of democracies, like that was a real change. It organized politics for us. And I think maybe what we're seeing here with this conflict in Ukraine is um, a shift kind of like that, kind of like the global defense of democracy. And even in the United States, we don't always agree on what that should look like, um, but I think we can agree that it's important. yeah. Um, and it, we can agree that we're feeling the effects, that the whole world is feeling the effects, and we can see people coming together um, in support of Ukraine I, I, in a way that, that I certainly didn't anticipate in this way. I mean, I anticipated there was going to be some sort of like circle the wagons, but not in this really passionate way um, because there's, people are seeing it for what it is, which is a direct confrontation between sort of the Western liberal democratic order and the forces of authoritarianism.
0: And again, Ukraine is just not some, you know, small nation in terms of no. its economic impact on the rest of the world because – Are they the largest producer of grain? They're one of. Yeah, Yeah, one of. So uh, so they're one of the largest countries in Europe, Mm -hmm. a lot of people. uh, And so that impacts the global economy. I,
1: I mean, and it's just coming like there are so many things that are coming together at the same time that I think demand our attention and demand this demand action and demand it now, right? So we've got Ukraine, which as you say, is, you know, a, a huge sup- supplier of grain, particularly to uh, areas of the world that need it the most, right? Places in the Middle East, places like Yemen, where there's already a massive conflict mm-hmm. brewing, right? That not even brewing, it's been going on, right? So the most vulnerable countries are now at risk of not not having enough to eat. So we've got famine conditions, we've got starvation, right? And that's in part as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's why it was such a momentous thing when those cargo ships loaded with Ukrainian grain were actually able to get out. That's huge, right? But I think when you think of this conflict, then add onto it other big things that are happening, right? Really severe impacts of climate change. Europe in a massive drought, a historic drought. The massive flooding in places like Pakistan, right? China also being impacted by climate change, right? you know, not to even mention the the heat that is coming to the United States. All of these things are destabilizing, right? And none of them can be tackled alone. They can't, right? So I think in some ways, I like to think of it this way. Maybe it's just because I'm an optimist, right? right. That this is something kind of shakes Americans out of our typical, like, we can do it ourselves. Um, you know, we can handle this by ourselves and, and we're good at it, right? We are. You know, we're a great country, but the types of problems that we have been facing and that we certainly are, that are certainly coming to a head right now, are problems that demand concerted action now, mm-hmm. right? Climate change can't wait. Ukraine can't wait. Those are types, you know, pandemic type diseases can't wait. And it, it's not enough for one country to do its best. It's not enough. You have to have concerted action and you have to have it more quickly. And I think we're finally starting to see that, but it, it, it's like the conflict in Ukraine sort of brings everything into sharper focus. It's like, it's 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 that conflict on which all of these other conflicts are now stacked. It impacts everything. Everything is interconnected.
0: Dr. Tracy Slackter, thanks so much for coming by and talking to us today. It's really good meeting you and thanks for sharing all the information with us.
1: Yeah, absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to UWO Now Uh, Remember to always uh, check for new episodes of UWO Now um, or simply click on the RSS feed to stay current with the latest episode of UWO Now. I'm Wendell Ray. Until the next time.